With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Around the Coin. Today's guest is Haney Rashwan. Haney is the co-founder and CEO of 21 Shares and Amun. 21 Shares is the world's largest cryptocurrency ETF issuer. They have ish- ETFs available or ETPs available in different markets throughout the world, notably not in New York or not in the U.S. We talked about why that is. Um, we discussed uh, a moon, the concept behind a moon, which is similar to 21 shares, but it is crypto first. So it's not in the stock market. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, we discussed how they started the company, what the concept is, how accessing uh, a Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies through public markets is so important, how they were able to do that before pretty much anyone else. And he threw out a few great recommendations, uh, Ben Thompson, Noah Smith, the Bitcoin Standard, uh, and others. I hope you enjoy this dynamic conversation with a good friend of mine. Here is Haney Rushwan. Haney, I'm excited to chat with you, man. It's been a while since you and I have talked, but uh, yeah, a long time. And we were talking a few minutes pre-show about the different the structure of the organization. I'd love to just start there and then we can build the house on that foundation. But yeah, walk me through just the general business entities and what they focus on. Sure. So the most important thing to note is all we see ourselves doing is building bridges into the crypto world. Now, depending on who the end customer is, there may be a different package, a different wrapper that is most appropriate for their customer. So let me give you an example. We don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and wants to buy a Bitcoin ETF or a DeFi index ETF. They wake up and they want to buy Bitcoin or a DeFi index and get some exposure to that space. Maybe that index is best in a token format. Say if you're crypto or tech native, or if you live somewhere in the world where accessing a MetaMask Ethereum wallet or a Santam Solana wallet is easier for you than European stock exchanges. Maybe you're a professional investor um, or want a security or want, don't want to manage the custody, um, certain age brackets, uh, certain regulatory requirements, depending on what you're doing, you really want an ETP, an exchange traded product, whether that be an ETS or ETC or ETN does not matter to us. And so the way we think about it is it is our job to provide that underlying product in every single wrapper in every single format possible. Think about WhatsApp or Dropbox having not just a Mac and a Windows app, but all of the other operating systems as well. So the the main company is 21. That's where we all work. And all of our mission can be just simplified as building bridges into the crypto world. The way we do that is primarily today through 21 shares, which is the world's largest issuer of crypto exchange traded products listed on stock exchanges around the world, as well as a moon, which does very similar things, but on the token side. And so it's tokenized products. And then underneath, we also have a third brand called Onyx, but that is the infrastructure that powers all of this, that issues the ETPs and manages them, that issues the tokens and manages them, both for us as well as a few other firms that, that also these products. And did the, did the third business roll out of or spin out of the existing first two? I mean, you basically, similar to other companies, right? When you build a product, you kind of create a foundation on which you then build the end consumer-facing 
did you recognize that through that foundational building process, you could spin that out and that's what gave rise to? So no, not at all, actually. It's a bit of a funny story. Onyx was there from day zero. We're primarily known for listing the world's first crypto ETP. There had been a few random uh, trusts or instrated products that didn't, they weren't necessarily collateralized by anything underneath where you had to depend on the credit worthiness of someone you've never heard of. What we did first is in Switzerland, which was the first place to allow this, built a physically backed crypto exchange traded product. And if you remember in 2011, I think 2012 or thereabouts, there were a bunch of people that are, that are big in fintech and crypto, the Winkle Voss twins, uh, Silbert and, and DCG that had tried and had been by the time we, we, we started thinking about this in 2018, tried and failed for six, seven years to bring about a Bitcoin ETF anywhere. And we managed to speak to 27 different jurisdictions, really thought about where could we do this that would be best. We correctly identified Switzerland as the, the most fertile ground there and were able to list it first. But the funny thing is in February of 2018, we listed in November of that year, but in February of 2018, we got approval. We got regulatory approval to, to list this thing. And we were terrified because we thought someone would beat us to it. It's so obvious. And, and we're just a two-person startup with, with no resources. And that's when it came to the next step of, well, how do we actually bring this to market? And basically none of the traditional financial players that would normally be the ones that do this issuance and administration platform either wanted to work with us or were capable of working with us. And through that mixture of both, we had to create Onyx in order to bring about the world's first crypto ETP in the first place. And then I think a few months later, we started speaking to other asset managers and banks and, and uh, other customers, including an American company called Bitwise, a Swiss bank called Signum, Bitcoin Suisse, which is large, and a, and a bunch of others that, that we can't publicly name. And then we started opening it up to third parties because from our perspective, a great tide lifts all boats. And we're just looking to get as many people introduced to crypto as possible. It's primarily through our products. But if, if we get people in the ecosystem that have their own strategies, that have their own ideas, we would love to bring them to market as, as fast as possible as well. So that's the story of how we, in the end, ended up building this full stack end-to-end -end issuer on tokens, on securities, with all the underlying infrastructure. I'm surprised that there wasn't more capital requirements or just general bureaucratic overhead that goes into getting approval in the first place. So with two people, <clears throat> I imagine you had some small seed, seed round. I mean, nothing compared to like a large institutional yeah. or large fintech company, was it just a matter of timing to some degree of being in the right place, saying the right things? Like, was the approval part not the hard part? And then it was a matter of going out and building this Onyx tool? I think they were all the hard part. <laughs> They're yeah. just very different kinds of, of challenges. So we raised a normal seed round. I think it was somewhere between two and three million in, in, in total. And we, you've done early stage startups before legal fees can pile up. You have to be very, very careful. And especially if you build a seed stage startup, you need to survive and show proof quickly enough. And you need to therefore survive long enough to, to do that in order to survive. And, and we're, we're a historically profitable company. We've been profitable since December of 2019, but that wasn't the assumption going into it a year and a half prior. We were very, very careful with costs. The way this actually worked and the way we were actually able to do it is we would, we would do all of the work ourselves as much as possible. Like you get the advice of do things that do not scale. The, the, the reason we ended up being able to do this in Switzerland is we called very competent Swiss council. It's wonderful and costs a ton, but the call wasn't, can we do this? Can you discover it? Can you discover and, and explore for us? The conversation was quite literally my, my co-founder saying, I was looking at the regulatory framework in Switzerland for the exchange, and I noticed an article on page 167 towards the bottom that we think could be applied in this way for what we want to do. Is this a correct reading of that? And neither one of us are lawyers and neither one of us had done this before, but we sort of just really worked very hard 
on, on doing all of that. And that is when the lawyers then said, yeah, this should work. Let's triple check with, with the regulators and the exchange and, and the other service providers. And that's actually how it ended up happening, except not just in Switzerland, but we did this in 27 different jurisdictions around the world over probably about a nine to 12 month process. And was there initial upfront register? Like where, where do you think the other companies failed? Because there's certainly a degree of research you have to go into. You have to, you know, due diligence legally to figure out how you can carve out the space in which you can operate. You have to, you know, submit the right paperwork. All that seems like kind of table stakes to to get into the game, especially for something as big and kind of like what you said, obvious as a Bitcoin ETF. I think the single biggest mistake that everybody did is have an over-focus on primarily America and the United Kingdom. You got a lot of people that, that wanted to list it in New York or London. And obviously we're working on, on both of those. One of them is obvious because it's very public and we're doing it with, with Kathy Wood and, and Ark. But we didn't think that was going to be the first to list such a product. And in fact, we, we didn't think that it needed to be the first to list such products. It's much easier to you know, turn around a sailboat than an oil tanker and, and all of that. And so I think the biggest, the biggest thing that we really considered is we were looking at what is the best base from which to first build and then expand rather than what is the most ideal market that we want to end up in. And, you know, it's 2022. We still don't have an ETF in either of the jurisdictions that I mentioned from anybody. And I would say that that our bet was very, very, very on point, and it was our competitors ignoring us and looking at this as a financial backwater that's not of significant scale that doesn't matter. It's the tenth largest stock exchange in the world, by the way, or thereabouts. Switzerland. Uh, and does this operate independently as just Switzerland as part of an? If I like, I don't, I don't know much about the Switzerland is, is its own thing. So there's the European Union, which, you know, famously Britain wanted out of and you get Brexit. Mm -hmm. Switzerland had never been in the European Union. They don't really do alliances and things like that super easily. They, they guard their neutral status as a holy matter. And so Switzerland was its own thing. But where we actually, and that was all helpful, right? But where we actually really bonded well with, with the Swiss was over crypto itself. Even at that time, Switzerland was calling itself, there was a crypto valley there. There was a community that was started there. And you would get politicians who would come in and say, no, 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 it's not crypto valley. It's crypto nation. Don't just give, because crypto valley was one canton or state of the country. Like, no, 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 no. This applies to the whole country. We're really into this. And you got, you know, political parties of all shapes and, and, and stripes very much agreeing that, that crypto is, is, Interesting enough, probably here to stay. And if it is, they need to make Switzerland at the heart of it. And we didn't get as much political buy-in from, from everywhere else. And it was quite early. Like the Swiss were very early and brave. But I think that if you look at the history of the country, it makes a ton of sense. This is a country where the federal tax rate is something like half a percent. And then you pay anywhere between 15 and 40% on the local level because states get to determine the, the taxation. It's an incredibly decentralized governance model by default. You can talk a lot about how the Swiss have had a long history of trading gold and custodying it. And Bitcoin being digital gold, which was, by the way, our argument. We initially used the structure that's made for Swiss gold to custody digital gold. That was, that was the whole innovation. And Obviously, the this, this Swiss have a very rich and long history of, of doing that. And then Zurich and Geneva happen to be financial centers. They're very large, especially in the private wealth and asset management, wealth management in general space. And while not being of the scale of China or America or even Germany was of a significant enough scale with significant enough support and with Germany and the rest of Europe next door and with everything else within very nice striking distance from Switzerland, we really thought that it would be the best base possible 
where we'd have support at home. We have no problems at home. And in fact, the success of our company and actually the success of our entire industry of crypto is a net positive, inarguably, for the country that we are in. And so all of these things coalesce together in a really beautiful way where then everything we've built today was made possible. Well, how many other ETF, Bitcoin or any crypto-related ETFs are in Swiss, in the Swiss market now? So that's the funny thing. We got a lot of uh, asset managers, big guys, primarily American, who um, scoffed at, at our listing in Switzerland. And they're basically all there now with much smaller asset sizes uh, than what we have. And so I think at this point, if you want to physically back uh, crypto products, Switzerland is typically the first stop. Um, if not one of the first stops. And I would imagine there's probably a dozen or more today, yeah. but primarily much more minor, obviously, as time goes on. And who can purchase that? I mean, do you have to be, you don't have to be a Swiss citizen. I mean, who can buy into this ETF given that it's in Switzerland? So essentially we have users from around the world. We restrict retail users in in the United States from marketing or advertising or anything like that. Because the United States has, has pretty restrictive rules and we're very respectful of them. One of the core tenants of the company is we're not looking for any backdoor listings. We want to go through the front door in every single jurisdiction and we want to not compromise on the product quality, which is why we have enlisted some of these imperfect products for the American market. But essentially it's around the world. I would say 99.999% of our revenue comes from outside the United States. And dominated by Europe, where we're a pretty large player, as well as a ton of traffic that we see from every continent with, with a concentration in the Middle East and Asia as well. So I, I guess just speaking about the market. Retail and stock market, by the way. Which is very important. Yeah. Because we, we believe in retail accessible products. So most of our shares are somewhere between probably 10 and $30 per share. And we have... While the bulk of the AUM comes from obviously larger institutional players, family offices, bigger funds, et cetera, the bulk of the people, like by count, are obviously retail and, and retail from around the world. If you can access a European market where you can buy Lufthansa or UBS stock, you can buy our product. And is that available to people outside? Uh, are there, uh, speak from the market the marketplace itself, do they restrict participants in other countries? Like, can people in the U.S. go and just sign up online and start buying your ETF on the market today? There's nothing that prevents anyone from around the world of getting access to any stock exchange and, and purchasing them. You and I can sign up for a brokers that gives us access to, say, the Thai stock exchange and then purchase shares there. In America, we absolutely don't do any advertising or marketing to really just about anybody, but especially on the retail front. If you go to our American website, it's quite different. Whereas in the rest of the world, our, our website is readily available with, with all of our products. And it's not that difficult for, say, someone in Singapore or Malaysia to set up a bank account or a brokerage account that has access to these top European exchanges. If you think about it now, we are, we're on the German Deutsche Börse. We're on the French and Dutch Euronext. We're in Austria, we're in Sweden, we're in a few other places, we're in Australia. So there's a number of ways that you can access our products. And, and these tend to be, like in, in Europe, I think we're on the first, second, and third largest exchanges within the EU. And so it, pretty easily accessible products most of the time. I touched on this briefly at the beginning, but we also have token versions of some of these products. And the way we see them is primarily accessibility in geographies where we're not present. And so we have users out of Ecuador and Guatemala that want to purchase exposure to some strategy, that want to have this. But for the foreseeable future, it will be much more difficult for them to connect to a European stock exchange than it would be for them to set it up a MetaMask or, or a Phantom Wallet. And... From our perspective, of course, we should provide those products in those formats for those users because it, for us, it's about accessibility and really how do we bring about the next billion people in, into crypto? Yeah. Yeah. To me, it, it feels like the compelling part is that I can use capital, use money inside of my brokerage account to easily purchase Bitcoin through the ETF. And if I'm already in the crypto world, well, then the 
the, the money is, I mean, many times it doesn't just take multiple days. It might take a fee. It may take, people might have different ways that they report taxes and systems that they've set up with their accountants. So the whole concept of being able to invest in Bitcoin in your, in your Fidelity or TD Ameritrade, whatever it is, your brokerage account is so compelling that I'm kind of surprised you guys spend time you've spent going into crypto only token ET, I guess, would you call it an ETF if it's in, if, is there a token ETF? Is that the right terminology? No, it's just, it's just, index. we call them basket tokens. Yeah. Yeah. Index basket. Index. Yeah. Basket. Uh, we, we call them basket tokens because that's the easiest way of explaining them. You have to think about how do we, how do we enable everybody around the world to access our products regardless of, of format? And I'm, I'm sure that you know, Home is not the biggest mobile platform, but I'll bet that bigger consumer platforms on mobile, like WhatsApp, probably have a Palm app somewhere, right? And and it's circling that up at the end that's very, very important. So there, there's a bunch of considerations here. First and foremost, like I was saying, we, we don't want to miss anyone. Just because you live in a country where there may not be as reliable financial infrastructure does not mean you shouldn't get access to an easy way of getting, say, DeFi exposure. That that goes against our mission completely. And so we want to make sure that, that you know, everybody has the ability to do this regardless of what their infrastructure looks like. But the second thing that you have to realize, especially if you're in crypto and we are... We compete against a, a lot of these traditional financial types. We, we are very much not. Every single... ETF, equity, stock, bond, commodity will be tokenized at some point. And so you sort of inevitably will go there that it's very important for us to own and in fact build both markets. But you're right, 99 plus percent of our AUM comes from the ETP side. That's not to say that I believe that will be the same mix in five, seven or 10 years. And you need a mixture of addressing how the world is now while also understanding where the puck is is going and building for that as well. And that's how we connect everything. Mm -hmm. And an ETP is a European or Swiss phrase for the ETF. It's the same. They say product, we say yeah. fund, ETC, yeah. or you know, there's different terminology, same concept. Bundling things These together, having one ticker symbol for it. The, the, the basic way of thinking about all of our products and all of our products work the same way is you pay money to buy whatever strategy and it follows either a single asset like Bitcoin or an index. And we go out and we are required legally to then go and purchase the underlying cryptos and then store them safely so that everything you have is sort of physically backed by the actual underlines. Not every financial product is, is, is like this. Obviously, there are some legacy products that have incredible premiums or discounts where you're, you're paying $10,000, but the crypto that you get access to may or may not be worth 10,000. Maybe it's worth 14, maybe it's worth seven. And so that is what we take out. Now in Switzerland, it just so happens that the way they call what is an American gold ETF, they would call it a gold ETP. Um, there's a lot of nuance there and it, it mm -hmm. is geography by geography. But the, the base still stands. We $100 worth of our shares equals $100 worth of crypto that we actually buy and store in the background and take care of them. Who stores that? Is it stored by 21 Co or is it stored by another company? We, we purposely keep arm's length away from that. We, we primarily go with you know heavily audited, regulated third-party custodians with the right licenses and insurance and and all of the safety and, and security that, that comes from that. We work with most of the large custody providers out there. BitGo uh, comes to mind. Coinbase, big yeah. exactly. Coinbase, yeah. Copper, most of the top custody providers. And we have, we probably work with somewhere between six and 10 different mm -hmm. custodians, depending on the assets. And, and, and we spread things around for, for some diversity risk as well. It's, it, it's a number of, of different firms, but what we ensure are they are they audited? Are they regulated as trust companies or custodians? Are they in reputable jurisdictions? What are their policies on uncold stories? What are their security procedures, et cetera? 
because one of our key, one of our key services that we end up giving to our customers is the ability to manage custody for them so that they don't think about it. If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. They realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. What, when you think about the future of Marcus in general, Today, it feels like a kind of bottom-up evolution of markets that have grown out of the countries, and the countries maintain control of these markets through effectively an extension of their political power. So the United States can either approve or not approve, like you're not in the United States. Presumably, there's some rule that some three-letter organization has said that this is not yet allowed. Do you see this move to being in crypto, let me be more specific. Do you see the move to the market shifting to crypto? Everything, as you said, is going to be wrapped and tokenized. Will that create a, certainly it seems like it'll have a major effect. Like no one country will be able to influence investment decisions, investment, you know, whatever goes into it. Frankly, I'm, I want to ask you kind of two parts of that. One is why, why is there still such relatively large fragmentation on these markets? I would think that there would have been by now kind of a a global market where there's like, you know, an agreed upon set of rules and every, you know, you can, Apple can be listed there and all of these tech companies can be listed. All the companies in the world can be listed there. People can trade. It seems like it'd be a win-win for just about every country. Is there kind of an obvious conflict of interest that that structure presents and why we have these like country specific or geo specific marketplaces? A lot to unpack there. So first... I wouldn't say that the U.S. or these other countries that haven't yet issued a product are necessarily anti-crypto or anti-Bitcoin or something like that. I do yeah. think that it's different geography by geography on what the needs are and what the rules are. But I think you sort of strike at the heart of why crypto and Bitcoin exist in the first place. And there are a number of different ways that you could you could look at this, depending on, frankly, where you are in the world and what your priorities are. But if you look at the history of the internet, when the browser was created, we thought that payments would be incorporated. One of the error codes, like, you know, the famous error codes with 404, a page not loading on, 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 on one side, I said 403 on the server side, et cetera, et cetera. We have, if, if you look underneath your browser now, error codes for payments not working, because that's actually how we thought about things from the very beginning that, that payments should be part and parcel here when, when you think about a global internet of connected entities. And for various technological reasons, it didn't actually happen until much, much later. But you saw a lot of people try and fail at it, including some companies that pivoted into something much more profitable at the time, like PayPal. But PayPal initially was about this theme of internet money. You can send me a text. I think we're, we're, we're 3,000 miles away now, right? But even if we're 30,000 miles away, you could still send me a text that would be delivered in, in a couple of microseconds versus 
a bunch of other barriers that, that we see. The very obvious one is actually movement. I think about visas, right? Each country restricts movement in some specific way. And border posts are, are friction points. And there's a ton of research on this. On uh, There was this economist called Michael Clemens, who basically says that if the world had unlimited free movement across the globe, and the global economy is about $100 trillion or so, right? That a world of unlimited free movement around the world would, would I think, add like $90 trillion to the global economy. We would roughly double it just by doing that. The same friction is, is added in any siloed system, including, as we think about it today, payments. And what, what you're really striking at is one of the core reasons why crypto should exist, because it should be easy as easy as sending a text or email as sending me $10 around, around the world. And actually, it doesn't work like that. Crypto makes it possible. But th this is one of those clear advantages that, that, frankly, I think there are a lot of obvious reasons why a country would want to restrict movement of money in some way. And, and typically, it's a bit protectionist. There are some reasons around, you know, security and, 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 and making sure that no, there are no nefarious elements, but there are ways around that as well of, of not giving up privacy while not giving up core features that, that, that should exist from a technological angle. And so I think all of that comes together in, in a, in a very beautiful case for why crypto is here. And ultimately at the end of the day, sort of like when Uber was very well liked by customers but sometimes not as well liked by the taxi cab commission or the local political party or whatever, we're getting a very similar thing. Like people are very clearly into crypto. There are, there are payments that, that we do as a company that are far easier to do in crypto than, than in fiat. And the people are demanding something like this that, that by the way, has a lot of other positive ramifications like privacy in, in, you know, in an age where all of our personal data is, is being stolen, like privacy in countries where you may not necessarily have physical protection and rule of law in the same way, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does seem like the compelling case for an improved consumer experience, yet I'm skeptical that this transition will be smooth from being a nationalistic controlled marketplace of economic trade to one that's completely decentralized. How do you sort of discern the potential negative external or in the case of the United States, for example, what, what measures do you think are realistically possible that the United States would take to prevent this transition, this capital flight from like the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ to crypto land? Like when that starts to happen, the pretty obviously the United States federal government, especially in these financial institute, these financial regulatory institutions lose their power. And I don't think they would be happy about that. And they would likely feel justified in taking action for specifically the prevention of future harm for the citizens of the country. And also maybe you know, they could argue it's somehow better in some other way. But do, do you anticipate that being a large resistance? And if so, what, what could it look like? I think there's a number. So first of all, I reject the initial premise and I'll get into it. I think there are a number of reasons why what you're talking about is, is a bit unrealistic. We've seen some of this in, with the internet. So Ben Thompson's a very famous writer within tech circles, runs this thing called Strategy, And he had an interesting post, I think a few months ago, talking about how there's now an American internet and a Chinese internet, and then possibly due to regulations, potentially a European and an Indian internet. But if you really think about it, China is the most re restrictive internet firewall, internet, yeah, firewall limiting yeah. kind of country and regulator. But the world's largest DeFi market is also China. So I, I, someone there is clearly figuring out how to get around and access this global internet that, that was created largely in, in, in the West. And so some of these kinds of things, when, like when you look at it from a technological perspective, are pretty futile. The government cannot shut down Bitcoin tomorrow, even if it wanted to. No government could. And I would argue that, especially in the West, where, where we're talking about, we wouldn't want to do that. To give your, your readers yet another writer, 
Noah Smith runs this beautiful blog called No Opinion. I think it's noopinion.substack.com has recently been talking about this, where a lot of the initial movement is not necessarily bad or harmful for the United States. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He makes the point rightly so that the staple coin market is predominantly U.S. dollar based, which makes over 10% of the total crypto market are these dollar backed stable coins where you have dollars in American bank accounts located in America that then enable people around the world, primarily, but not necessarily in places outside of America and the West to be able to transact, safeguard their assets in the US dollar, et cetera. And as you think about a bunch of countries, especially of the more authoritarian side, creating central bank dominated digital currencies, it's very likely that these stable coins are only going to rise in value. And I'm not, I'm not sure how that is a bad thing for the American dollar per se. Now, we can't predict history, but there are very clearly a number of different ways that this could go. There would be a very net positive for America, for the West, for, for the, you know, ideals that, that, that people cherish and respect here that it's not going to necessarily be the, this outcome that, that people are worried about. And then the good things about, I think, our structure is that you ha do have the naysayers. You have the people that, that are, have entrenched interests that don't want to lose power. But just, just the same, you also have a number of, and we're seeing them, to use America as an example, but, but also we're very, very active in Europe, and this is across the continent, a number of political players and regulators and industry experts and service providers that, that very clearly believe in the opposite and, and see these consumer benefits, see the inevitability of it, and want to position their geography to be the kind of winner like a Dubai or Singapore or indeed London, New York, San Francisco in attracting some around the world when, when others may be not as quick, not as smart. And I as, as someone that really enjoys the West and, and enjoys, you know, living and being part of it, I, I really do hope that we don't lose sight of the massive once in a lifetime opportunity that, that we have here as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you that it feels inevitable given a long enough time horizon. And I only look at like a, maybe a parallel industry that comes to mind recently because it's topical is psychedelics. Psychedelics hold a lot of promise yeah. for mental health, but in the late 70s, they were banned. And so for 50 years, 40 years, there was no research, zero progress. You could argue, you know, how many people committed suicide, struggle with mental health issues that could have been solved had there not been government intervention in banning this completely. And now just recently, this is starting to become more legalized and recognized, but there had been an overt like war on drugs and just like banning things across the board. And my concern is how do we do more than hope about making sure a similar thing doesn't happen in crypto? Because if you look at it, it's, it's kind of an interesting parallel because in psychedelics, there was a, a lot of promise, a wide popularity across the late 60s, particularly in the United States and California. It wasn't as if it was like a fringe thing. So it felt very much widely accepted. And then there was kind of a, a revolt attitude around Vietnam. There was a catalyst for tension. And then there was a banning. And at that time, there really was not even close to enough counter resistance to, you know, go against the, effectively the, the United States military in what would have been, you know, that, of that physical conflict. But today it feels that, yes, I agree with you that inevitably crypto will become a, a, central, a, a decentralized worldwide market. But China has recognized that this is a potential threat to our political power. And so we're going to ban it nonstop, just cold start, right? There's no, there's no trade in and out of China. I don't, I think you can legally hold, but you can't move crypto, but effectively they've taken a hard stance on that. And so they, they draw, they can see a rational threat to their power. I don't think the United States has recognized that threat, but I don't see it as more than you know, a, a few influential politicians start getting together. You made a good point. There are some politicians that are clearly like supportive of Bitcoin and crypto, but they're, most of them are silent and almost still to cast a vote. And that's where I'm like, what, 
clearly the the line in the sand they could draw is no one in the United States can trade crypto. Crypto. I mean, if they decided to pass a law, they could do that. And then it would be, then you'd have to choose. And I just, I, I wonder about that, right? It, it, still, the, the dust is not settled on this. Yeah, I think, I think the situations are very different, right? Because, so we can talk about the inevitability of things, right? China did ban crypto across the board. Pretty, pretty draconian ban yeah. across the board. How is it the world's largest decentralized finance market? Right? Like the, there is a wait, very... Wait, can you explain that a little bit? So largest decentralized finance market, meaning... So, de people... so decentralized finance being Ethereum wallets and being able to, to purchase through decentralized exchanges. But yes, you can't access Coinbase or Binance or, or, you know, centralized exchanges from there, but nothing stops you from getting around the firewall in a number of ways that, that we know are possible and interacting with the outside world. And so in the same way that there are a lot of Chinese visitors of YouTube and Google services and things like that, they will find a way to it if there's enough of a consumer need. So I think the inevitability of it is very real. Like mm -hmm. when you talk about no one in the United States can do this, no one in China can do this, what does that mean in practice? And how many people derive a benefit from exercising it? Because in the case of China, I wouldn't say that's actually a successful ban based on what we're seeing. If in fact, part of the rise of DeFi is probably attributed to that because it's, it's pushed a lot of, a lot of that out. That's one part of it. The other part of it is certainly the people that are pro crypto in the United States happen to be influential, connected elite folks who naturally have a lot more power and, and sway. And especially as you start becoming more intellectual about it, this great knee-jerk reaction of this will be a net negative for the United States, I would argue all day and night against, right? And so I think it's, there's a huge educational element here, but if you're a rational logic person, you will see the opportunity, which, which is part of why we're working on additional listings across the globe. And I wouldn't say that we have run into a single regulator around the world of many different cultures that is just virulently anti-crypto for, for some random reason. There's educational issues. There are all these myths that we need to bust, but there's an incredible opportunity. The last thing I would say is that this is very clearly a situation where someone will let this happen and build a thriving ecosystem out of it. And if it's not us, it's going to be someone else, much to our detriment. It, you see a lot of very large, very new, very transparent, very not so much countries around the world trying to build infrastructure around crypto. Switzerland is, is a great example of this, but Switzerland is now competing against Dubai and Singapore and all of these different jurisdictions on who can provide the most fer fertile ground. And given the incredible wealth of talent, resources, the, the history that, that we in this country have, have had in building all of this, you know, boy, would it be a tragedy for us to, to miss new epoch yeah. that could be as large as the internet, because we certainly did not miss the internet and look at how much value we've gotten, not just from a commercial and economic standpoint, but from a social standpoint, from a national security standpoint, it still, you know, benefits the West greatly that the, the internet is, is, remains a Western controlled entity. And while control in crypto is not going to be possible in the same way, certainly things like better regulation, certainly things like stable coins, the US dollar is dominant on stable coins. There are alternative currencies that, that could also be stable coins if, if that is no longer an attractive option. But I would argue really strongly that that is a net positive for the U.S. dollar and therefore a net positive to America and therefore a net positive to Americans as well. Again, just using America as an example, but I think this is one of those where if you provide a fertile ground for crypto, it's like providing a fertile ground for startups. And certainly while there is a Silicon Valley, there's also a lot of other ecosystems that, that benefit all of those countries tremendously. And I would expect to see more of that, not less of that. And and. Based on my behind the scenes conversations with, with the people that, that think about and, and decide these things, I'm, I'm not as worried. I think we have a lot of education 
to do. And, and it's so early there, very similarly to how the internet developed with a lot of scams and a lot of nefarious players. We're seeing, unfortunately, some of the same activity, but it's, it's all noise that, that is distracting us from A, the real product and progress we have today, and then B, the real unfathomable potential of what this could be. Lauren. Mike. So we host a podcast for Wired called Gadget Lab. We do. We do. <laughs> yes, that is correct. <laughs> Tell the good people some more about it. Well, I think the good people should definitely tune in every week because they get to hear me roasting you. Hey, no. All right. No, really what Gadget Lab is, is Mike and I tackling the biggest questions in the world of technology. I like to think of it as the best of Wired's journalism, but in audio form. We cover the big news of the week in tech land, but we also offer our expert analyses and opinions on all things consumer tech, whether that's mobile apps, hardware, startups, cryptocurrency. Mike, what's been a recent highlight episode for you? We did a deep dive on the group behind the massive Okta hack. We mm -hmm. also had a great conversation about Web3 and the metaverse. What stands out for you? Never metaverse you didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed our recent podcast about Peloton. Um, and recently, the legendary tech journalist Kara Swisher joined us to talk all about Elon Musk and the future of Twitter. So I guess we should tell people how they can listen to our pod. We release a new episode of Gadget Lab every week, and you can listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you pod. Yeah. No, I, 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 the only thing I, I hang up on is that I think of the United States as federal government, particularly as an entity in which to recognize a distinguished set of incentives from the citizens of the country. And that entity carries a momentum or like residual cultural value and the recognition of the U.S. dollar as being powerful. And that is why we have the USDC and Tether as being you know, significant parts of the crypto universe. I do think that will eventually change. It's, it's, it's set to change because the United States' political influence in the world will always, every country will change. The United States seems like relative to China and India is going to decrease in relative influence around the world. And as such, I would assume that the means of liquid transaction on crypto is going to, ch is going to have pressure to change from USDC to Tether. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if a year from now, some politicians get together in federal government and say, we're going to we're going to pass a 10 trillion dollar bill and like all give it to all the Americans. And now if I'm in another country, it's just massive dis disincentive to hold th this. You know, why? Why am I holding? It's like kind of worst of both worlds. Why am I holding a crypto stable coin that's tied to a fiat's ability to print money? And, and I would imagine like it seems like I want to ask you this. We have long-term store of value in Bitcoin. Seems like well-established. Bitcoin gold is almost cliche to say. Bitcoin as a replacement to gold. It, it seems like kind of the the tectonic plates that are still shifting are what's going to be the everyday medium of exchange that people use equivalent to cash. Maybe that centralizes on one kind of currency that's fast and easy to use. Maybe it's like Lightning, which is a a branch off of Bitcoin. Maybe it's maybe it's a hundred different things. Do you have a take on what that uh, replacement to USD will be in crypto? I think it's it's way too early yeah. to to really uh, see that it's it's quite early. I want to give you a counterpoint though to to your your main argument. Clearly after World War II, America had a disproportionate share of the global economy that that led to some of this reserve currency status shifting from whatever it was before, the, the pound sterling maybe, to, to the U.S. dollar. And that has had positive effects on America. And depending on where you are looking at this from, maybe different effects. It doesn't change the fact that a lot of the buyers of, of Tether, a lot of the buyers of USDC happen to be non-Americans. And they're clearly voting with their, with their feet, so to speak. And the alternatives are not wonderful depending again on, on on what your view of the world is and and i think this is part of what noah smith was was, was talking about is that there's a ton of actual capital flights from some of these competing geographies into the u.s dollar into this this ecosystem that's actually pretty interesting and the counter example that i'm providing here is a country that's very you know near and dear to my heart especially now is switzerland never reached the status of the united states as a global superpower but the Swiss franc is still a very, very highly respected store of value. 
regardless of their waning influence overall. And so will, will the U.S. economy be the absolute largest in the world in 10 or 20 or 30 years? Probably not, based on what we're seeing from a few other players. Does that necessarily take away from the attractiveness of America as an investment market or the dollar? Remains to be seen. And does that, is there a way of, of doing that such that, you know, the Swiss franc being one thing, but Switzerland has benefited from people safeguarding their assets, both in the Swiss franc, as well as in gold, which is an unrelated currency. I know I've, I've, I've lived in Switzerland for quite some time now. I've yet to see a gold mine. It doesn't have that resource at all, but clearly they've benefited from that as well. And so I'd imagine a, a mixture of crypto and U.S. dollar stable coins being a net positive for America and the West. I would imagine other stable coins will, will pop up and will become popular as well. But I'm still not completely sold that this is in any way, again, if we play it right and, 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 and not really mess up this opportunity, could still be a very net positive. And if, in fact, could be a detriment to other approaches how, how and do you other feel? competing approaches. New York City, New York State certainly has a lopsided influence in the world's financial markets. They clearly have a, a set of circumstances in their regulatory and policy state today that you can't operate. Many other crypto companies don't operate. Their taxes, I think, are the highest in the country, yet it's still next to impossible to find an apartment there. It, it feels like it is a paradox of sorts where they have maybe in lieu or in spite of all of seemingly really destructive policies, they have sort of cultivated enough momentum of economic activity to keep the thing going. Do you think New York is shooting itself in the foot with the policies they currently have? I would, I would presume that you're going to feel the answer is yes, right? Like you can't operate, you would like to operate. I would imagine they would, they should change yeah. their, their policies. Do you feel like it's a, New York is like, about to drown themselves and headed the wrong direction. I mean, that's my sense is that they're just trying to preserve an old school way of doing business, i.e. Wall Street, and just clinging on to that. And then the fintech sector in Wall Street becomes less and less relevant. I, what, what, do you make of, what do you make of New York, their policy and their influence? Yeah. I think there are a couple of ways of looking at this. We've, we spend some time in, in, in a real sales city, San Francisco, and clearly, <laughs> you know, and, and clearly the policies that, that were done by that local government has contributed greatly to the GDP of Austin, of Miami, and the exodus as we've seen it. Like, n not in my wildest dreams did I expect this, uh, for this to happen this massively, this quickly. And I think when did you, when did you move out of San Francisco? Uh, 2017. Yeah. So okay. So you, exactly you, yeah, you were a height of, I remember it yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. By low to high. Whatever is happening here. <laughs> it was <laughs> exceptional timing, honestly. But I, I sold a company and, and the acquirer was in New York. So I actually, that's not me being so prescient and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and intelligent. It just happened to work out well. And I think that's the clear danger for any geography in, in being a hotbed of some activity that you regard as particularly valuable and then doing things to antagonize it in, in a variety of ways. I think you're talking about a few laws that were probably written by people that are no longer in, in, in power. And certainly some of the recent developments in New York are promising. I think the, the, the new mayor, Eric Adams, seems to be not antagonistic towards crypto, wants New York to continue being the, the crypto hub. We see a ton of activities in Brooklyn, especially of, of a lot of very core crypto developers. Crypto is much more international, but a lot of the development is still happening in, in America and a lot of the talent is, is, is still here. And I think that he's been doing a lot of the right steps, moving in the, in the right direction. Obviously, I would love for it to be even faster. But if it's, and I would love as, as, as a, as a person who was, I, I, I went to university in New York, I, I live here. I, I want them to figure it out, but clearly if they don't figure it out in time, someone else will. And I would say that's true, not just of the city, but the country. What, if you're in charge of, you know, I'm not sure if the may, I'm not quite sure how much influence the mayor has in the financial policy, but say you could, you know, rewrite the book, so to speak. Where, where do you, what, what do you do first in New York? Speaking about New York specifically. 
I, I think that overall, you need to lower the friction. You need to lower the bar of what it takes to build a new startup. That's just a generally speaking good policy to have, right? Imagine back in the day when it cost 10 or $20 million in a seed round to resist, to, to build a startup, you were getting less interest and you're getting less interested from diverse groups that may actually contribute to the innovations behind it. Right now, starting a, a crypto company in say New York versus Miami, New York is harder. You, you need more money, you need to, to, you know, pay more lawyers. You're more restricted on, on all of that. I don't think that makes much sense for a very new, rapidly developing technology. And so it's a mixture of satisfying the very real concerns that, that regulators have around, you know, sandbox usage and things like that, while not constraining it so much that some of the world's largest exchanges, which operate in the other 49 states, restrict New York specifically. And, and I don't understand, as, as someone who spent a lot of time in, in this city, I don't understand how that's going to be a net positive over the long run. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that there are other states that have taken... I mean, part of the beauty of the United States is there are different experiments you can run in different states and we can see the results of that. And we can acknowledge that San Francisco didn't work out. Policy is there. You can move to a new place. You have the ability to vote with your feet, which is arguably more important than the ability to vote with a voting booth. Because it's like, there's so many other things you vote on when you move with your feet than you do by casting one vote for, for president. And by the way, the other thing is, do we necessarily want... New York to be so dominant in this decentralized new future. What, what is wrong with Wyoming setting up a bunch of these bank charters that, that are going to be wonderful for the space and attracting investments and, and talent and people to Cheyenne? Well, um, uh, in terms of Bitcoin mining, Texas is massive and we hear a lot about it at West Texas and the wind and, and all of that. But one of the largest markets, if not the largest market for mining in the United States is actually Georgia, which is unexpected. You know, the, the, the exodus that we have seen has been a very net positive to Miami, certainly a city that, that is going to have a tremendous amount of challenges, you know, from an environmental perspective with rising tides and issues economically, et cetera, in the future, redefining itself as that. So I'm not necessarily sure that we should be so fixated on one particular state or city. It would be sort of like us. And I think we both love San Francisco at some point in our heart and love the network and love what we've experienced there. But, you know, to go back and ignore everything that is happening elsewhere in New York and Miami and Austin and concentrate on, no, San Francisco has to be the center of everything. I'm not sure that's the right approach or not. I, I hope yeah, it does. But if it doesn't, it, someone's loss is another person's gain. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's, I think these are such important conversations to have because clearly there is unexcavated gold, so to speak, of wisdom in the philosophy of operating a city and the, the method of determining what policies are correct, because we elect people and they run the government. And in San Francisco, there's very smart people with plenty of money, and yet they come up with the, they end with the worst result. So somewhere along the line, there is like a chaotic. Something's missing. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you got the, do we have the wrong people in the job? Do we have, like, what are we doing? And without going into detail on San Francisco, I think it represents a bigger pattern that is, is super. And it's part of why competition is very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what happened to San Francisco. You mentioned Noah Smith, Ben Thompson. Are there other people that you've read or follow? that have influenced your thinking in the last few years or since you've gotten into uh, I So I, I think John Oliver has this funny quote of like, crypto is everything people don't understand about economics, then diagrammed with everything they don't understand about technology. <laughs> and so I'm a very big, I, I studied history in, in school and I'm a very big fan of understanding the trends that got us here today. So I actually read a ton of financial history. You, you see a lot of parallels to what has happened before. And I would, I would push people on not just reading about crypto, but sort of understanding this in a more macro sense and understanding our place in history. Whether you think there's a new global superpower, new reserve currency, whether you think there's a new technological innovation, we've seen all of these inflection points several times before. Go and read about them and then 
none of us know the future, right? But it's important to have that base of knowledge when we're having these kinds of discussions, because frankly, I think we could, at this company, and we're a very small part of the crypto universe, I could see us working on this for decades to come, you know, while it's still being built slowly, slowly. And so that's what I would recommend people to go and, and read about. Crypto is very influenced by Austrian economics. It's influenced by the failures of the past in the 1990s with the cypher funds. And a lot of those concepts, I think people sort of just know the headline, maybe just the label, but don't really dive deeper into it. Any particular books or people that stood out to you that you've read that have sort of a... I would, uh, I would start with the more macro historical guides. I think Nathaniel Popper, who I believe is in, I want to say New York Times columnist, wrote this very nice history of, of crypto's development. The Bitcoin Standard by Lebanese author, I think his last name is Omos, scribes of a thesis that is agreed by agreed on by a lot of people in crypto. Ludwig von Mises, who's the father of the Austrian School of Economics, his stuff is probably a little bit too thick, but there's there are probably a bunch of very nice summaries out there. Ray Dalio's new book is interesting in that it does talk about these inflection points and it puts them in in a good place in in, in history. By the way, I've mentioned through, yeah, three works there that I don't necessarily agree with a hundred percent, but it, but it influences my thinking and it's important to, to develop a, a fuller picture of that. And, and then you start to understand, you know, every, decentralization as it exists today. Let's go back to Lehman Brothers. Let's then go back to the concept of double entry bookkeeping, which was created by this Franciscan monk and has religious implications. And it actually, I just went through a thousand years of history very casually, but it drives, I think, Bitcoin, Ethereum, the blockchain today. And that's underappreciated and, and, and people should really dig deeper into that with those being good entry points. And then my favorite part of every book is the end notes mm -hmm. uh, or the footnotes, depending on the book. Delve deeper into that. Mm. Have, you th have you read uh, or listened to any Apologies recent work with the network state? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's, I think it's quite interesting. And again, it's one of those themes that keeps coming back in history. I remember watching a debate, I want to say in 2012 or thereabouts between Mark Andreessen and Peter Thiel. And, and part of what they were arguing was, will more countries be created or less? And the, the crazy thing is that we have 193 countries today, maybe 194. I would imagine we have probably less than 50 countries at some point in the 1900s. That's pretty spectacular growth. And then you, you get these, you get these interesting, you talk about, you know, the entrenched interests having an issue with it. The president of Kazakhstan, which is so ironic, Kazakhstan, meaning the land of the Kazakh people has publicly stated that he's against self-determination. Why? Well, it would create mm. another 600 plus countries. And, and so you, you start seeing all of these things in the lens of, we've seen this before, we've heard of this before, things come and go in different ways and entrenched interests will, will react to them in, in specific ways. And this may or may not have some implications on the current style or the current phase that, that we're going through. And so I, I would encourage a lot of people to, again, look at all of this and read it not just from a Western perspective, but study, you know, how, how these have happened in other cultures as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I know you're from Egypt too, and have lived, you know, maybe spent time in Switzerland and traveled all over the world. So yeah. I always find it fun to talk to people who are exposed to different cultures and, and different ways of living and different policies, et cetera. Hey, this was super fun. Congrats on everything. Always a pleasure. Uh, yeah. Are you actively writing or tweeting uh, personally? I'm at Nanny on Twitter. That's I a good one. H-A-N-Y. Every day. Yeah, I've been there for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So at H-A-N-Y, the, the company's at 21 shares and at Amun, A-M-U-N. And you can find a bunch of my retweets and, and thoughts there. Sweet. All right, brother. Thank you so much. This is fun. Thank you for having me. Cheers. It was fun. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.